I am, um, I am really needful of God's help this morning. I am excited. I feel like I am prepped in terms of my notes. Um, I love the themes that we're going to be looking at this morning. Um, I mean, every morning I should, every Sunday I should come eager to preach God's word and rejoicing, but some mornings it feels like for me there's more excitement than other mornings, um, and this is one of those mornings. But I also know that I, I can't do anything apart from the Holy Spirit working. Um, we can't move closer to God apart from the Holy Spirit working. So would you all uh, pray with me that God would be at work this morning in our hearts? Lord David says in Psalm 19, Who can discern his error? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep also your servant from presumptuous sin. May it not rule over me. Lord, um, when I come before your word to preach, I am aware of, Lord, ways that um, I am deficient and my heart sins. And Lord, I battle with um, all kinds of things that are contrary to your Holy Spirit nature, but I thank you, Lord, that Jesus is a perfect high priest uh, for all of my deficiencies, and he's a perfect high priest for all the deficiencies of everybody in this room, Uh, Lord, that he has grace and mercy that's overwhelmingly sufficient for this very moment to make your word seeable for us. He has overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly sufficient grace to make your word minister to us, to make your word transformative to us. So I pray, Lord, that our husband redeemer, the Lord Jesus, would mediate the grace and mercy that we need today through his compassion for us, his sympathy for us, through your compassion, your sympathy, and your love for us, which is why you sent him, so that we could expect, Lord, this morning for you to meet us, speak to us. Lord, please protect me from... um, Error, protect me from overdoing anything here. And please work, Lord, be at work to glorify yourself, to reveal your majesty to us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I am so hopeful that by God's grace, uh, your faith will be strengthened this morning. Last week I began our series, uh, this Advent series, which is about Messianic prophecy. I began uh, by taking us through passages in Isaiah where God tries to make clear to his people that he knows the end from the beginning. And he, through Isaiah, through these chapters I took us through, I I asked you to consider not just the prophecies and the predictions that God makes about the end from the beginning, but the fact that Again and again and again, as he's making these predictions about the future, he'll stop in the midst of these predictions and explain that he is able to do this because he alone is God. And he'll appeal to them to test him uh, in a reverent way, to test him and compare him to the false gods. He, He says things like this to the people. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs says the king of Judah. Let them bring them, speaking of the idols that the people were worshiping through. 
Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. All throughout scripture, God tells his people what he is going to do. And then he brings to pass. And he says, see, I am God and there is no other. God is not only predicting again and again, he is declaring that only he, only he has the power to both predict and bring to pass what is to happen. Later in Isaiah, he says, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet yet done. God's goal in doing this is not to give people... um, just stimulating predictions that they can read the newspapers and try to figure out what's happening. His goal is to convince the people that he is who he says so that they might believe in him, hold on to him, turn to him, and and be saved. On the night of his death, as Jesus tells the disciples for the umpteenth time that he has to suffer, that he has to go to the cross to pay for the sins, that they're going to scatter, that it's going to be a really rough next few days. That their world's going to be turned upside down. In the middle of that, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus says, in John, in, 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 in the Olivet Discourse, in the Gospel of John, he says, I am, behold, look, I am telling you these things ahead of time so that when they happen, you will know that I am he. And that's exactly what God is doing through the whole Old Testament. God wanted people to know his plan to send the Messiah because he wanted people to be able to recognize and believe in him when he came. And after he's come and leaves the earth, he wanted people to know and to be able to hold on and endure because he did exactly what he had said he would do. Jesus' life on earth, in the, detailed in the Gospels of Mark, Luke, Matthew, and John, is full of, of Old Testament prophecies being noted about again and again. You will read through the Gospels that very plainly, chapter after chapter, event after event, especially in Matthew, especially in John, you'll hear these phrases, this happened so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. This happened to fulfill what the prophets had said. Jesus knew people would reject him. But he also acted as if he had a right to expect to be recognized. He knew people would reject him. He knew they would be hard-hearted in unbelief. But he acted as if he had a right to be expected to be recognized. In other words, though he knew people would not recognize him, he always acted like they should have. Though he knew people would not recognize him, he always acted like they should have. And as I closed last week's messages with or uh, crescendoed with, perhaps no scripture sums it up better than Luke 24. After his resurrection, the risen Christ meets the downcast disciples on a walk on the road to Emmaus. 
Jesus is unknown to them at this point. He hears their dejected hopes. They are sad because they were really hoping Jesus was going to turn out to be the Messiah. But then he was crucified. And now their hopes are crushed. But instead of consoling their dashed hopes and comforting them in their dejection, he rebukes them. He says, oh foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? He expected them to know through the prophets all they had spoken. So he rebukes them. But just as Jesus does all the time with those he loves, he doesn't just rebuke, he helps. And so, beginning with Moses, in other words, beginning with Genesis, because Moses is the author of the first five books, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So here is the incredible reality for anyone, anywhere, who can hold a Bible in their hands. You can know that Jesus is exactly who he said he is because God told the world exactly who he would be, when he would come, where he would come, what he would do, century after century beforehand. For centuries before Jesus walked the earth, God told us he was coming, when he would come, where he would come, what he would do. In astonishing detail. So, as we did last week, I'm sorry, so today progressively for the next few Sundays, we're going to look at several important prophecies in detail. So that was kind of a sum up because last week what I really wanted you to do, we didn't look into these prophecies in details. I wanted to try to build into you a sense of this is really important. God really cares that we pay attention to these prophecies. God really wants us to have a, a faith that's built on something that's evidentiary, that's reasonable, that's rational, and that's beyond a reasonable doubt. God expects us to know Jesus before he comes, to expect him to come. And he expects us who have seen him come the first time, who have lived past his coming, to be able to look back and say, this really happened. This is really true. And predictive prophecy in the Old Testament scriptures are a huge means of why we can continue to believe beyond a reasonable doubt, why we can continue to hold on to the truth of Jesus Christ. And today, as opposed to just trying to build that theme, I'm going to go into detail. We're going to begin to do the work of going into detail about prophecies. So please strap on your seatbelts. I'm, I'm going to try to, um, to do this carefully. Um, but, but I'm going to, uh, we're going to go to some places that I'm going to ask you to keep yourselves awake <laughs> through because the, the, the scriptures are going to be Many, and they're going to be um, precise. So please try to do your best to to stay with me here. Um, 
And may I not be overwhelming. So, now, the nature of predictive prophecy is something like, um, I've used this illustration before, it's something like Google Earth. Anybody have Google Earth on their phone? Raise your hand if you've ever used Google Earth. So, when you start Google Earth, if you do it the way that I love to do it, 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 you know, the fun thing is to go way out, right, and see the planet, and you can even take your finger and spin the globe of the Earth, and, and, and you can, then you type in some address, and either quickly or slowly, it just zooms. And, and so the, the details become more and more clear as you zoom in, as you go along. You zoom from outer space as if you're standing on the moon to your, uh, to your nation, and then you, you move closer to your coastal area, then you get into your state, then you see your city, then you see your neighborhood, then you get to your own house. It, it's kind of like that in predictive prophecy. The image of Jesus in Scripture gets clearer and clearer. And actually, as we'll see in, in the next couple of weeks, it gets shockingly clear as you, as you move closer to the time of Jesus' coming. So, but it starts from the very beginning. We get a, not a bad look from the very first pages of Scripture. God's burden that we would know about and look for and find the Messiah was so great that the first prediction in Scripture of him sending in the Messiah happens at the very beginning of the travails of the human race after our first sin in our first father, Adam. Now, before we look at this particular passage, I don't want you to miss the foundational context. It's the Garden of Eden. It's the beginning of all things that have to do with God and man. Adam has sinned, and he has brought corruption and death to the whole human family to come through his sin. His death will ensure death to everyone to come. This is the apparent defeat and swift defeat of the hallmark of God's creation. So this is, even though it's early, this is an epic crisis that can't be kind of underestimated. God's image bearers the, the ones meant to flourish as the head of all of creation have been handed over to destruction. Everything God has done to create and to establish this universe and this world and his image bears has been brought to destruction through sin and the enticement of Satan. So what is God's response Well, in Genesis 3.15, he makes a promise to defeat Satan and to do it in a certain way. I'm sorry these are kind of small. I will be reading them. I'm still trying to calibrate what font size 40 means on my computer and what it ends up meaning here. But this is what God's response is after the destruction of his glorious plan for the flourishing of his image bearers to rule, subdue, and act as his representatives to know him. And, and I'm, I want you to consider this promise this way. This one promise, I would argue, frames the rest of the entire Bible. This one promise we're about to read frames the rest of the entire Bible. It is, in a sense, what the whole rest of the Bible will be about. Uh, a writer named Alex Modier writes of this passage, The whole of scripture is not packed into every scripture. 
but we may allowably expect every scripture to prepare and make room for the whole. This is what happens in Genesis 3.15. In summation, Genesis 3.15 is what the whole rest of the Bible about. This passage makes room for the whole of scripture. Here in this passage, God tells Satan, I will put enmity, that is strife, that is animosity, I will make of enemies between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. For all of human history, God declares there will be war between the offspring of Satan and those who are not his offspring. And notice, it is the woman not the man who will have the offspring that is individualized into a man someday who will crush Satan. God will not crush Satan directly. He will do it through a man. But notice the man comes not from a man, but from a woman. He is the offspring of Eve, not the offspring of Adam, not in the specific, precise way God explains it here. This is a most unusual way, especially in the context of the Hebrew culture and the whole Old Testament. This is an unusual way to talk of offspring when a husband is clearly present, especially when God has just commanded them both to be fruitful and multiply. Why in this little couplet, this little prediction, is the man ignored and the woman highlighted? Consider the context of Genesis 3. The man has just been sentenced by God to an eventual death for his sin. So in a sense, we might ask, how can Adam, the man who's just been sentenced to death for his sin, or what will come from him, his offspring, how can he destroy Satan if he and his offspring are captive to death for the sin that Satan led them into? So Eve, not Adam, represents the vessel through which God will bring the seed to destroy Satan. But how can a woman bring a seed to bear without a man? And so many see here the first glimmers. Again, we're on the moon looking at earth. It's not in clear, precise detail, but many see here the first allusion to the virgin birth of Christ. The one who will come and crush Satan's head that is ultimately destroy him is the seed of the woman, not the man. Second, notice not just the fate of the serpent, who will be crushed in his head, but the fate of this promised offspring who destroys Satan. He suffers. His heel will be bruised by the snake. Some commentators have made the point that that is a serious wound for a snake, a poisonous snake, to bite you on the heel is a very serious wound. In other words, His victory over Satan will involve suffering at the hands of Satan and his offspring. So from the earliest pages of Genesis, we have a credible picture, even if it's somewhat vague or mysterious. We have a credible picture of what we might see as hints of the virgin birth and a suffering Savior whom God will bring to destroy Satan. Our next prophecies are found in Genesis 12 and 22. 
Adam and Eve are long dead. The world's been judged through Noah. And here in the middle of Genesis, about 1850 BC, about 1,850 years before Jesus, humanity's filled the earth after the flood. Many nations and languages have come into being. And once again, mankind is straying away from God and pursuing idolatry, gods of their own making. But in the midst of many people, God reveals himself to one man. And he chooses one man out of all the people of the earth to be the father of his chosen people, Israel. That man is Abraham. But even in choosing this one man to be the father of one nation separated from all the other nations, God also promises that Abraham is about more than only his holy nation. Because he says in Genesis 12, not only will I multiply you and make your descendants like the sand of the seashore, but in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Not quite ready for that slide yet. One back. Thanks, Brando. In you, he says, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. More than 25 years later, God brings Abraham a son through whom he's promised to make Abraham's descendants. And shockingly, and Steve Weisga led us in a beautiful message about this several weeks ago, but shockingly, he asks Abraham to sacrifice this son as a burnt offering, the son through whom he's promised to make a great nation. But, and, and this is, I, I don't know what are the, the word to use, what I want to show you guys here is, I think it's, it's mysterious. It's, I, I want to use the word precious. Um, I want you to listen to how God calls Abraham to give Isaac to him as a sacrifice. He says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. And then when God stops him, he says, I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And then after he stops Abraham and, and, and makes a, a comment for the second time about your son, your only son. Here's what he does in verse 15. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. What is up with this? What is going on in God's heart in this critical moment in human history when his heart is so moved? He's moved because of this theme. Your son, your only son. Three times the Lord explains that what is most meaningful to him is the willing sacrifice of a son, an only son. Finally, as God recommits his promise to bless Abraham, he adds a new shape to it. It, it will not simply be in Abraham that all the world would be blessed, but the promise is in your offspring. 
In other words, your son, your only son, his offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So God is going to destroy Satan through Eve's offspring in Genesis 3. God is going to bless all the world in Abraham's offspring in Genesis 22. But of course, there's a lot of offspring that's going to come from this man, Abraham. So what offspring? Abraham begets Isaac. Isaac begets Jacob. Jacob begets 12 sons who will be the 12 tribes of Israel. This nation God promised to bring out of the offspring of Abraham. Jacob nears death. In his old age, as he's about to depart from the earth, this grandson of Abraham takes his 12 sons who will become the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel and he singles out one son, Judah. And this is what he says to that one son, the scepter, that is the instrument of rule, the symbol of a king, will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet And he says this, until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. Among all the tribes, there is one tribe that will rule above them all until someone comes to whom the scepter really belongs. And this man will come to rule more than Israel, the peoples without qualification, the nations. So now we're focused on Judah's descendants and from him someone to whom the ruler's staff belongs who will rule all the peoples. 800 years go by. Israel is established as a nation. King David is sitting on the throne. We're moving through the Google Zoom process, getting clearer and clearer. Finally, a descendant of Judah, King David, is ruling all Israel from the territory of Judah. And on one occasion, David prophesies about the future. I mean, he he does that many times in the Psalms. But I want to look at one that's particularly provoking. He's prophesying about the future, and he composes one of the most marvelous and strangest prophecies in the entire Old Testament. This Psalm, Psalm 110, is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, by the way. I'm sorry, it is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. Listen to what David says. Yahweh, that's the name of the God of Israel. Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Yahweh will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. The Lord is at your right hand. Now, the Lord there is not Yahweh, but the Lord spoken of in verse 1. 
The Lord is at Yahweh's right hand, in other words. He, this Lord to come, will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead. Now, I left out several verses that require much more unpacking than I'm going to give today. But massively important elements are right here for us to see. We just slow down for a second. Massive implications. Consider the first stanza. Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Who's the author of this psalm? It's King David. Think about how strange this is. King David speaks of Yahweh, that's God's divine name, who is talking to someone that King David calls his own Lord. In other words, King David is looking at two other beings, Yahweh and this unnamed, unspecified Lord, who's his Lord. David is a king. There's God over Israel, and under that, there's the king, David. Who's this in-between guy? How can David have a king besides Yahweh? A Lord between him and God? In Matthew twenty-two forty-five, Jesus asks the Pharisees, whose son or descendant the Messiah is? And they reply what any well-learned Jewish religious teacher would have. He said, they said, he's the son of David. He's the descendant from Judah. He's the descendant of David. And Jesus quotes this Psalm 110 back to them. And he says, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He says, if David calls the Messiah Lord, then how can he be his son? In other words, the son was not greater than the father. The father was greater than the son. If David is calling his own son Lord, he has to be more than just David's son. And their mouths were shut. They, had, they, they, had not, they couldn't explain it. They had nothing more they could say. So clearly the Messiah wasn't just David's son. He was someone else's son. That was the implication. They understood it really well. Verse 2 of the psalm says, Yahweh will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. There's this scepter again, the symbol of a king. His rule takes place even while his enemies exist. And they're being subdued in a process until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. But here's another extremely strange moment in this psalm. In verse 4, Yahweh says, Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. And what did he swear and will not change his mind about? You are a priest forever. David says this Lord and king of his will also be a priest A priest. A priest is someone who does what? They offer a what? A sacrifice. A priest makes a sacrifice to appease God on behalf of God's people. But here's what Jesus expected the Jewish people paying close attention to their scriptures to get. And what he expects us to get who have Bibles that we can read. In the Old Covenant Mosaic Religious Law, the king and the priest were forbidden from being the same person. Under the old covenant, 
It would be like a president also being a Supreme Court justice, also being a Speaker of the House, all at once. The Old Covenant separated the office of priest from the monarchy by law. You couldn't be both things. It was a violation of the covenant of Moses for the priest and the king to occupy the same office, to be the same person. But David's Lord is a king and a priest. So this must be a priest of a different covenant because the old covenant forbids the mixture of priest and king. Finally, this priest and king is not only a ruler, but he's the judge of the whole world. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead. All of this was written about a thousand years before Jesus told Pontius Pilate that he indeed was a king in the same hour that he would suffer as a priest, sacrificing himself for the world. Google zoom in further. Hundreds of years go by again through the prophetic clock to about 750 years before Christ. And we read one of the most famous messianic prophecies from Isaiah. It concerns this descendant, this offspring of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David, the guy who just wrote Psalm 110 we just looked at. So this is a descendant of Jesse and David by implication. You guys following me? And here's what Isaiah says. Just listen closely to this. A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. With righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse who will stand as a signal for the peoples. And his resting place will be glorious. Let's look at the person described here in this passage. He destroys the wicked, just like the offspring of Eve in Genesis 3 and the king priest in Psalm 110. He brings blessing to the whole world. The nations Go to him and his resting place is glorious. He blesses the whole world just as Abraham's offspring would in Genesis 22. He's a descendant of Judah because he's from Jesse who's from Judah. Just as the world ruler in Genesis 49. He judges all the earth like the king priest in Psalm 110. But notice something very strange here. This man is called the shoot of Jesse, meaning he's from Jesse in the first verse. By verse 10, he's called the root of Jesse. My kids, we talked about this last night. I said, where's the tree come from? They said, the roots. What's the tree make? It makes branches. Remember that, John? We talked about it last night. The trunk comes from a root, and the trunk makes branches. But this person is the root and the branches How can he be both the descendant of Jesse in verse 1 and the source of Jesse, the root, in verse 11? What kind of being can be both 
the child of someone and the source of that same person. You can't be your father's child and your father's begetter, your father's source. Isaiah unpacks this more astoundingly in chapter 9, 6 through 7 in the famous passage most of you guys have all heard. A child is born to us. A son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. How can someone be the branch and the root? How, how can someone be the child and the source? Well, this prince of peace is a child. He's a son given to us. But this little baby will rule the world because he's also called mighty God. Eternal Father. Now we have a being who can be both a child of men and the creator of them. I, I, I wish we had time. I, I could show you more proofs in the Psalms and in other places of the divinity of Christ. It was a scandal to the Pharisees that Jesus would claim to be God's very own son. It was a scandal to them that he would claim to be God the son. But these claims, as difficult as they may be to comprehend, there was clear precedent and evidence for Israel to know that the Messiah wasn't a man alone. He was a God-man. How slow to believe, Jesus said, all the prophets have said about me. At the very same time that Isaiah was writing his prophecies, the prophet Micah wrote this famous prophecy in chapter 5 that takes our Google Zoom even clearer. We're starting to get from the moon to the city. Here's what chapter 5 says in Micah's book. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, meaning what a humble little torn-up village you are, full of poverty and meekness, God says, from you, one will come forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His times of coming forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. And listen, he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. At that time, he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. This one will be our peace. Zooming in here, we have the very place of the Messiah's birth. Not Jerusalem, where we would normally expect a king to be born, but a tiny little village called Bethlehem. And yet this little baby, again, has eternal origins. His times of coming forth are from long ago, 
from the days of eternity. So what's our picture look like today? In Genesis 3, we started with the offspring of a woman who destroys Satan, but suffers injury doing so. In the rest of Genesis, we see he's a descendant of Abraham. He blesses the whole world. Something about this blessing to Abraham resonates with God in such a way that he says three times of the sacrifice of Isaac, your son, your only son, just before he promises to bless the whole world through Abraham's obedience and the offspring that will come. In Genesis 49, we learn that this one to come comes from the tribe of Judah to rule the peoples. In Psalm 110, we see that he's a kingly descendant of David, but he's also David's Lord who judges the world. And he's a priest who offers sacrifice. In Isaiah 11, he's a descendant of Jesse, and yet the source of Jesse. In Isaiah 9, he's a human child, and yet he's called mighty God. In Micah 5, he's a world ruler who shepherds Israel and rules the world. He's born in a tiny village, Bethlehem, but he comes from all eternity. There's so much more. This is literally the tip of the iceberg. If you want to know about more prophecies, talk to me. I have many more than we'll get into in the last couple of weeks. But in the next two weeks, we're going to look at two messages that will leave absolutely no room for who this person could be in human history, but Jesus Christ. In particular, we're going to focus on when the Messiah would come and what would be the mission of his first advent. What would be the, the mission of his ministry on earth? This one who is to rule the world, to judge the nations, to sit on David's throne, has an important ministry, a crucial ministry as priest and sacrifice that is so clearly spelled out in the Old Testament. It's, it's at times it's bewildering and humbling to, to realize that people could be so blind to it when God works so hard to make it clear in the prophecies we're going to look at in the next few weeks. See, the, the whole Bible, this whole book, this whole book from Genesis to the end is, is really about one thing. It's really about one thing, how God restores this fallen world through the offspring of Eve. Just like I said, Genesis 3.15 encapsulates the entire major theme of Scripture. This whole book is about how this king, this priest, this son, this God who will crush Satan and destroy wickedness, this shepherd who will be the peace of the world through selfless sacrifice and almighty power is going to fulfill what God said he would fulfill. Messianic prophecy isn't just a part of the Bible. In one sense, it's what the whole Bible is about. The need for a savior, but the promise of a savior. The coming of that savior, just as he was promised to come. And the coming return of him. 66 books written over about 15 centuries in different languages and cultures, but all about one thing. The plan of God to rescue us through the Messiah. If we are paying close attention 
we should see that. O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them all the scriptures and things concerning himself. Jesus wasn't being harsh when he said that. He was saying to them and to all of us today, brothers and sisters, aren't you paying attention? Aren't you paying attention? I didn't mean to make this massively obscure to you. I laid it out clear to you. Are you paying attention? Today, brothers and sisters, a king is sitting at his father's right hand. He waits there while God brings his enemies to surrender and then to worship. He waits, this king, every moment of every day of your life. He waits on you. He ministers at God's right hand for you, interceding for you, moment by moment, temptation by temptation, failure by failure, victory by victory. He waits on you. He waits on you so that we can live lives that shine as light in this dark place so that more of his enemies will surrender and worship and let him be their peace. He waits until it is time to do just what the book says he has yet to do, to come to judge the living and the dead. The Messiah has come just as God said, and he will come again just as God said he would. God expects us to believe, but he is sympathetic and knows that it is not in this world, in this dark place, always easy to believe. So let's pay attention because he's given us enough. In the next couple of weeks, I hope you will be strengthened even more. Let me pray for us. Oh, Lord God, you are who you say. You have given us more than enough. Please sustain us through your precious word, this word you have given us, so that our hearts would endure, so that the light of faith in our hearts would not be snuffed out, but would grow and be a light to others around us, that they might know you. Thank you for your precious holy word. Thank you for your promise of Messiah, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.